we have Harshal uh, Mathur, who's the co-founder of Razorpay, uh, one of the most exciting young companies to have started in India. And uh, some of the origins of Razorpay are uh, very fascinating. Uh, we in RBL Bank and I personally have uh, the greatest honor and pleasure of working along with them uh, as they have evolved to something very, very, very strategic, scaled, an important part of the financial services system. So, Harshal, wel welcome to uh, Power Conversations at Orville Bank, and uh, you know, um, look forward to chatting with you. Thanks, Ajit. Thanks for inviting, and yeah, look forward to the conversation. Yeah. So maybe Harshal, as as we normally do, you know, we go back to the origins of uh, how did this all start. Uh, I'm sure, you know, people have asked you this question, but I think we all want to understand. And then I'll probably weave in with a few other uh, questions along the way. Maybe just free-flowing, let me know how did it all start and how come into payments. Yep. Yeah, no, I, think, uh, I think the journey has been pretty exciting and we keep looking back to when it all started, right? So, um, so I think technically we did start somewhere right around college, right? So me and Shishank were, uh, uh, were in Ayatollah Rudki and we got to know each other during that time. And uh, we used to be part of this technical group that we had started, uh, where we used to build projects, um, software projects together. And that's how we got to learn how to work with each other a lot. We used to spend a lot of time working on projects late at nights. And uh, and I think Shishank, and Shishank was senior to me in college, so when he was graduating, he uh, just threw that idea with me that, hey, maybe we should try to do something of our own. Uh, he got placed in Microsoft in US. Um, a, a year later, I got placed in Shlambhaji in India. But I think that thoughts lingered with us and we kept, we stayed in touch and kept trying our hands in different things, even while we were doing our jobs because we had evenings uh, to ourselves. So we just spent a lot of time building things, tinkering with things. Um, I remember like distinctly that one of, uh, during one of those times we were trying to build like a social crowdfunding platform for India. It was more like a hobby project, it was not a startup startup, so we were doing like in our evenings and on weekends and we were trying to build a platform through which like for example people could um, uh, raise money for their, uh, their sick parents or something like that. And while we were doing that, one of the most import important constructs in such a project is payments. So we reached out to a lot of large players who used to do payments at that point of time. And we felt like the, the digital payments was extremely hard for a startup to get into. And, uh, and we tried to research a little why were we getting that bad of an experience. Uh, and what we found is that at, this is like 2014. And while payments industry, digital payments was uh, considered a sorted space, it was still focused very strongly on large businesses. And the reason for that is most of the payment volume at that point of time used to come from large businesses. Startups are still fairly young. I think the largest startup was, of course, Flipkart at a couple of billion dollars, but most of them were fairly young and small compared to that. And nobody cared about startups as a category in the online payment space. Uh, this, uh, this coupled with the fact that it was very difficult to get accept digital payment acceptance in India. Most startups started by accepting cash, and that felt uh, a little counterintuitive to us because in our belief, uh, the point of digitization, the point of technology, the major thing that internet has changed in the last 10 years is that it has made things uh, democratized. Like whether you're a small guy or a big guy, you can sell online sitting anywhere in any part of the world. Yeah. And unless you solve for digital payments, that journey is not complete, right? Because yeah. even though I can ship to any part of the world, I can't accept payments from any part of the world. And um, then I'm not taking the full advantage of selling online or selling on internet. Yeah. Uh, I think, and the other belief that we had is that while startups are coming in a lot at that point of time, they were not that big. So the volumes were not that high. But one of the beliefs that we had is that if we build a product that becomes a de facto platform for startups, and let's say we get all the startups that are formed in the country, uh, and we ensure that we retain them as they grow big. Uh, few startups, every, uh, every, out of every startup, thousands of startups that we onboard every month, few of them will grow up to become really big. And we could grow big with them. So oh. that that was a second theory, and because of that, we felt that this is a very interesting space to get into because payment is like a basic infrastructure. It's like sure. electricity in the online world. Like you yeah. have to have it, right? And if you build something which is really great, which works uh, as you promised, the product mm -hmm. slick, 
then the kind of market says available to us was like there's no limit to it like we yeah. we're not look, just looking at the india market says at that point of time we were very certain that if, if we do this well the market says in india would explode further and yeah. uh, so i think that that was the original thesis because of we felt that um, this is an interesting space to get into and we started putting our heads together into how could we get into this space uh, again it was not really easy because it's not like a uh, e-commerce app we can't just build it in our back in our garage and launch it uh, yeah. payments is a regulated space you have to work with a lot of partners and everything but but that's how the original theory came about uh, oh. on why to build raise up so so this is interesting um, i mean there were if i recall 2014 15 many well funded young companies so ptm obviously is is the poster child of indian startups and is a scaled up company mobiquick also was there i think buildesk build junction were been around for far longer actually and yep. they they had they done an amazing job in the 2000s and early 2010 uh, so did you feel daunted yeah i mean you know payments is heavily regulated banks be have and we have like at least 6 7 well funded and more yeah. experienced people so you know where will we land up uh, and we just out of college i mean it's not like as if you had eons of uh, you know hard knocks uh, so it's quite interesting that you chose payments and and what was your feeling then when you looked around and saw all these big guys yes yeah, so a couple of things first is that a lot of the startups that are coming at that point of time were focusing on consumer payments right? they were yeah. consumer companies first uh, which is of course as a has always been a very big field in india uh, i think the journey is still not complete people are filing the wallet wars then and the upi wars now but that continued uh, we were focused on b2b payments and very few startups were focused on that space so we were focused on helping businesses accept money and not a lot of startups were focused on that space the incumbents which are large guys uh, were focused were they were there were a lot of incumbents in that space but they were focused mostly on enterprises one of the most basic theories for us was that uh, if you look at b2b payment companies in india most of those companies were started by uh, ex finance folks right like somebody who came from came from finance background and the reason for that is it requires approvals partnerships and all that and it's it's easy for somebody from finance background to build all of those things uh it was very hard for a engineer out of fresh out of college like me to build that right so uh so we knew that the barrier to entry for somebody uh, a technocrat like us would be extremely high but the reason we felt that it was worth it is because while indian payment space enterprise payment space was dominated by finance uh based and sales based companies globally as markets mature globally around the world we have seen that in the end the winners in the payment space are companies which With, with a tech first background uh, with a tech yeah. first founding team so whether you look at strive you look at paypal you look at adian you look at braintree square i mean all the largest most successful payment companies globally have are companies who have come with a tech and product first uh, background and then built finance into it instead of starting from a finance first background yeah. and just using technology as a side stepping rail sure. so i think I, i think that was a larger story uh but you're right like almost every vc i met at that point of time almost every banker i met at that point of time would ask me that same question that you guys are from finance folks you don't know about this space there are 15 players already doing what you guys do so why are you getting into that space and uh, uh, I, i think the finally the major point that worked for us is that we started talking to our customers long before we even started building basically so we start when we felt that the problem was big we started reaching out on facebook groups and uh other platforms that hey uh, does every startup face the same challenges that we are facing is our theory right and in our conversation with those startups we realized that the problem is pretty deep right and another thing i remember the yc we went to y combinator and there is one simple statement that yc keeps saying on how to build a big startup um it's called make something people want it's a very simple statement that if people already want something uh-huh. can you build it uh is you, you can't have a better guarantee that your product will be successful and we had that guarantee because we were talking to customers who were saying that hey if you build something very simple in this space uh that solves for all of these thousand problems that i'm facing with these guys yeah uh, because nobody cares about my startup nobody cares about because i'm a me because i'm a small guy if you build something which is tailor made for me as a small guy then i'll be willing to work for you so i think just yeah. having those customers uh confidence on day one uh finally that was the most important point for us to decide that okay 
even though there are 15 20 players in the space uh, there is this segment of customers who is still not being served well and if you do this well they'll they, they uh, they'll scale up really well you mentioned yc and and you know this is a this is obviously the pinnacle of uh, you know getting adopted by yc and having gone through the grind i know many other young companies from india have done that how did this thing happen i mean you know and maybe i'm sure there is a there is an amazing story behind it or a non story behind it can you just help us understand that it's essentially a non story so we were building a startup uh, as i said like and we had started getting partnerships with banks we started building it but it's still not launched we were still uh, just there in terms of getting customers ready and uh, yc has an application period that opens up twice a year so yc application period opened up and uh, uh, i mean we of course had heard about yc it is a, as i said is a pinnacle of startup world it is funded the some of the most successful companies in the startup space so so we felt that okay maybe let's let's apply to yc right it's a very simple process it's an online form that you have to fill we really had no confidence that we would get into yc right because this, this is a time when there there was only one india focused company specifically focusing on india uh, that had got selected into yc before us so it's not like they used to choose india focus, companies focusing on india as a market in a big way so we're not very certain that we'll get into but we said okay let's give it a shot uh, the one good thing about yc in uh, application process is that the application form is pretty detailed and if you're building a startup just going through that process helps you think of a lot of things that you probably don't think like initially you just think okay this is a problem you should build something and you go ahead but you don't think about the 20 things that you should probably think when you build a startup yc yeah. application form asks you all those 20 things that who is your competition why would customers choose you or them what is your advantage in this space yeah. uh, what is the market size how big could this be what are 20 other things you could do if it go big i mean we are not thought of those things so just going through the form was a pretty deep exercise in our, in getting our own thoughts together uh, and i think we thought okay whether we get into yc or not at least we'll have some of these questions answered for ourselves so we filled the form submitted it with very low expectation of getting a call back but they called us and they said that they would want to interview us uh, so they want us to fly to sf to go through an interview with the partners uh, i mean we were related so we flew to sf um, the yc interview process is very surprising right so they have a 10 minute interview and it is 10 minute by deadline right so so you get into the room they talk to you and at exactly 10 minutes somebody knocks the door and you have to get out like you it the interview can't run beyond 10 minutes even if you want it even if they want it right so so yeah it was it was such it was such a flash for us that we get into that room they started asking a couple of these questions and before we knew it somebody knocked on the door and said hey uh, you guys are done so so we walked out and uh, and we again had very low expectation because 10 minutes flew so by so fast we couldn't even make sense of whether we did well or whether we did that uh-huh. uh, but yeah later in the evening the team called us and said that you guys got it to yc and i think that was a very important moment for us a big uh, not just because of the yc because of yc's brand but i think the way yc partners and their the discussions with them the discussion with their alumni the discussion with the investors they connected us with i think it really changed our vision a lot i mean we always knew we want to get into payments but how big could this be what all could we do um uh getting some of the learnings on some of the pitfalls that people uh, fall into when they're building a startup i think that was a very important important journey for us and i think it paved the way for rezapay as a company i mean i think rezapay would have looked very different if we had not got into yc so i think uh, i think that mentorship was really really helpful so the yc kind of experience do you think we've managed to do something similar smaller size in india in terms of you know many incubators accelerators have been attempted over the last 60 years uh, yeah, i don't yeah. hear of anything which has got even building you know similar cachet ultimately and why is that i see yc something building something like yc takes time right because yc didn't earn the separation on they, they they essentially started the concept or invented the concept concept of accelerators they're one of the first accelerators in the world and they've come through a lot in last in 15 years of existence and east uh, where they've reached so i think building something like in india i think there are a lot of people i know are trying that and they are doing really good at it like for example gsf is an accelerator that i sometimes talk to uh, people and uh, a lot of good companies have come out of it they're similar accelerators but it takes time to build like it's a grit and people have to go through that i think the reason why it's so famous today is because 
some of the companies in their early batches have went on to become multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. And it takes time to build multi-billion dollar sure. companies. It takes about sure. seven to 10 years uh, for a company to hit unicorn status. And that's when people start realizing, okay, this accelerator is doing well. So I think we still get to cross that time frame, but I'm pretty sure we could build something similar in India. Got it. And, and did the YC stand open up doors on funding for you? I mean, did you, have, had, did you raise funds before that? No, we hadn't raised any funds before YC. Uh, uh, so, I mean, of course, YC was important in funding perspective. Uh, but I think the major advantages of YC were beyond funding. Uh, and just setting up the right structure for the organization was, the, I'll say, is the most important aspect of YC's mentorship because their partners would help you run through, okay, when should you hire your first sales guy? When should you hire your first uh, engineering leader? When should you hire your first sales leader? And things like that. Right? Because a lot of startups go overboard in it, hire too early or too late. I think that was the most important aspect. But from a funding perspective, I think what YC does is that they have a demo day at the end of three months of mentorship. And demo day is a very unique event. It's one of the first times that investors are running after founders versus founders running after investors. <laughs> because you are in that room and there are 300 investors in front of you. Uh, and you just uh, pitch your startup. And uh, all of... Uh, and, and at the end of the by the end of the day, you have exchanged 300 business cards with all investors, where everybody wants to get a share into you. So, I think the only, the great thing that Day does is that it flips the table around, uh, and and it fast tracks a fundraising experience. So, uh, after a demo day, within two weeks, we had closed two and a half million dollars, two and a half million dollars in funding. And I don't think we could have done it that fast if we were like not part of IC because typically we would have and we had raised two and a half million dollars from 33 angel investors. Uh, to set up meetings, negotiate terms, and all of those things with 33 investors, listen, it sounds like an extreme task. But YC makes it so simple because they already have a very different terms at which you raise money. So the yeah. terms are very different. You don't have to negotiate on term sheets and stuff like that. Uh, they bring everyone into the same room. So you don't have to chase 33 investors, for example, to set up meetings, calls, get a commitment, all of those. And it just puts, um, puts a clock on the, on the entire process that, because everybody knows that there's so many investors that you are in touch with. Everybody wants to move fast. So, so the fundraising process becomes really smooth because of that. Yeah. And since then, uh, Harshil, you raised, uh, by my reckoning, about another 120 odd million dollars. Yeah, about 100 million dollars. Yeah, 105 million dollars. Yeah. I'm a little shocked, Harshil, that it's been six plus years and all you raised is 120 million dollars. <laughs> yeah. So I think. Uh, that's the advantage of being in B2B space. Uh, oh. Because we are not in B2C, our burn has always been extremely low. And because of that, we always always had more money chasing us than we needed. So oh. at any ev almost every found, funding round that we raised, right from when we raised the Series A of $9 million, we were offered 15, we raised 9 because we didn't really need the money. Uh, to a Series B, we raised 20. To our last round, we raised uh, 70. Uh, almost every round, we have raised... Uh, uh, lower than what you we were offered because unlike a B2C company where you want all the cash you can because you have to market, you have to spend uh, money in acquiring customers. In our case, money doesn't help us scale a lot faster. We need money to hire the best talent and build the best products. But like, and a lot of times I tell investors that if I had, if I had raised $70 million or versus $150 million, it's not like my company would grow 2x faster. Unlike a consumer company where it would. Sure. Uh, sure. And that I believe is a is the biggest boon of being in B2B. Of course, there are disadvantages of being in B2B. You don't get as much limelight. You don't get as much uh, public visibility. Uh, but but I think uh, you can build a more strongly sustainable business. Your burn is always uh, within control. And the burn is always on tap. Like you can always turn, turn it down very smoothly. Unlike a consumer company where if you try to suddenly stop marketing pushes, uh, your growth will stop. Uh, in a B2B space, the growth is not directly dependent on how much money we invest. Yeah. So that's an interesting segue into your business model. And, and I want to understand, you chose B2B, uh, you had a well-defined uh, experience-based gap in the market of young companies who looked at seamless way of receiving and making payments. What, were the, what was the learnings along the way as you started implementing that? Uh, maybe if you could share with us some of that. I think there are a lot of things that we learned along the way. I mean, uh, uh, startup journey, the best part of our startup journey is that you grow a lot. A uh, lot of beliefs that we started with uh, in early days changed. I think uh, 
couple of things I'd say is that first thing that worked well for us is that we stayed very true to what we do. That we were very clear on day one that we want to build finance and fintech for businesses. And even though we have launched a lot of products through the journey, we have always launched everything only for businesses. So, so for example, when there were wallet wars going on and everybody was trying to build a wallet, and a lot of people asked us, even investors asked us, why don't you build a wallet? Like you have so many large merchants, why don't you build a wallet? We said, no, wallet is a consumer product. We are a B2B company. We would not want to get into that. Then you had UPI wars and a lot of everyone was building UPI apps and a lot of people asked us, uh, that why don't you build a UPI app? And we are very certain that no, we, we are again, we are a B2B company. We'll build products. We built UPI, but we built UPI for businesses. We will not build it for uh, consumers. Uh, similarly, pay later and so many things came out. And I think that focus really helped us um, because as you can, as you've seen, like a lot of companies came in the wallet space, very few were able to survive. A lot of companies came in UPS space, very few were able to survive. Uh, us being very deep into our customer base, we were never threatened by any of that. And that allowed us to continue to work well, even though there were so many large and heavily funded companies in all of these segments. Uh, the second thing that we learned in B2B space is that uh, I think as any founder, right, and in the early days when you're building, let's say, a payment company like us, you're always attracted to the large guy that, hey, if you get one large customer, then, then that will make up so much volume that you don't need to worry about these thousand small customers, right? And, and I think I was no different. Um, I was also into that greed. So once you got funded, I used my Investors Connect to get connected to companies like Flipkart and Snapdeal and some of the largest guys in that in that time. And I started talking to them, hey, why don't we are building this interesting thing? Why don't you guys try us? And, and we were at a point where, at a meeting where we could have almost, if we had pushed a little harder, we could have gotten an entry into one of these large guys. Uh, but I think that point of time, we had a conversation with one of our uh, angel investors and he said that, are you sure you want to get into that journey? And we felt that like, I mean, why is there even a doubt? Like if you get a one, one customer like, uh, a Flipkart or a Snap deal, then yeah. it will make up for 1,000 or 10,000 other customers that we will get on the SME space. Um, but I think during that conversation, we realized that it was probably not a good idea for us to do that. Because if we had got that one large customer, suddenly, our, of course, our volume would have jumped. Uh, our grass would look very different uh, that we present to our investors. And then we couldn't afford to lose that volume. We'll be in very strongly and deeply concentrated into that one merchant uh, or two merchants and then we'll have to build anything that those large enterprises would ask us to do right? because I mean, we can't afford to lose them. So, and their demands would be extremely high. There's no possibility that our product would fit them well completely. So they'll ask for 1,000 features, 2,000 features, and we'll keep building them because we couldn't afford to lose them. Uh, and I think our entire company's trajectory would be built to serve that one customer or two customers. Um, and I think we're fortunate that we had that conversation and we decided not to uh, go ahead and close that one large customer. And I think uh, the mentor that we had a conversation with gave us this example that, hey, you could eat, uh, you could eat like 50 rabbits, you could eat like 10 deers, or you could eat one elephant. And eating one elephant sounds exciting, but once once you get that, then you'll you will be so done with it that you'll not be able to do anything else. Right? So yeah. uh, first of all, it didn't take a lot of time to get that one elephant. And even if you get that on board, then you'll never be able to move forward from it. And and I think that analogy fit well for us that, hey, we want to target the rabbits and the deers, but I think it's too early for us to start targeting elephants. And I think that's really important in the B2B space because a lot of companies end up becoming, start with a product company, you get one large client and you end up becoming a consulting company because you have to keep building custom features to serve that one client. Oh, Fortunately for us, because we kept focusing on startups, we kept scaling up through that channel organically. And, and that allowed us to stay true to what we were, which is a product company. Yeah, this is a very useful insight. And I'm actually amazed, Harshal, uh, and I would be love to be a fly on the wall in your board meetings. You know, I mean, these kind of um, realizations or insights and the ability to listen, you know, I mean, I think one of the challenges we all have, not, not just people, yep. young companies, is just that, you know, you have to learn to say no. To, to a thing which is perhaps too early for you. Yeah. And I think that's one learning I've had in the last five, six years that just by building it big, you're not going to build long-term durable uh, value. And I think you've made a very phenomenal point that uh, if you want to eat the elephant, uh, then you need to be you need to be far bigger than them because otherwise they start consuming. Uh, yeah. how, how has it been uh, since then you've raised money 
you're you're a very enviable angel and institutional captive. I mean, you know, you've had some of the best uh, Sequoia, Matrix, Tiger, uh, Ribbit. Uh, you know, how has it been managing such a large number of professional investors, and and how do the dynamics work out? Uh, you know, when you're taking strategic calls, I mean, you know, how do you how do you balance everybody and how do you leverage their unique uh, strengths? Yeah, so first is that like, it's not just that the investors choose to invest in us. I think uh, one of the things that a lot of times founders miss out, and again, this is something that YC focuses on, is that it's not just the investor choosing you, you are also choosing an investor. I mean, yeah. and a lot of times in early days, like you'll have that, okay, somebody's giving you $15 million, others is giving you $10 million, you'll go with the guy who's giving 15. But like, $5 million delta would not matter much if the investor is not the right fit for you. Uh, a lot of times, this short-sightedness works really bad. Because you get a $50 million guy, but he doesn't understand your business as well as the $5 million guy did. I think yeah. one thing that we did in every round is that uh, we, while we were talking to investors and they were doing diligence on us and checking us, we also did a diligence, small diligence of our own. We would talk to the founders that they had funded before, the founders that they failed that they funded, and how some of these investors have supported those founders in their tough times. And I think that was really important. Uh, it is an important exercise that almost every founder should do. because when you're getting a bad with an investor, you're, it's not a one-year, two-year journey. That five, ten million dollar delta would be finished in two years, but the investor would be on your cap table for the next five to ten years if you're building a long-lasting company. And you need to ensure that you have shared the same vision, same ideals, and same models uh, on how you want to build up, build the company up. Uh, so I think that's one thing that worked well for us. That all investors on a cap table really understood what we were trying to do, what we are trying to build. Uh, and the kind of belief system that we had, and we share a very strong collaborative relationship. So, I mean, the investors play a very important role of being my sounding board, right? So um, that, okay, let's say I decide to build, uh, uh, get these large customer on board, I'll share with these guys and they'll share their viewpoint. And a lot of times when you're deep into your business and you're into that trench day to day, uh, you probably don't have the time to think outside uh, yeah. from an outsider perspective. I think the investors play that role very well uh, and having a well-functioning board is an important ingredient of building a successful company uh, that the board plays uh, a very strong sounding board uh, sounding board for you that any idea that you have or any big thing that you're doing you run by them and they give you their important it doesn't mean that you do exactly what the board says uh, i mean it's your company in the end you're the founder and you're the one who has to decide uh, what direction the company should go in but hearing every opinion is important uh, and just learning from their experience is really important because a lot of them, those insights are very helpful. Yeah. I think uh, our boards are run very uh, strongly in that context that there's a lot of free-flowing ideas, a lot of free things discussed. And at the end of the board, I know that my investors trust me enough that, well, they've given their opinion. If I decide to do X instead of Y that they've suggested, they'll still be okay with it because they've yeah. invested in me and not just the business. Uh, yeah. So they want to trust me, but they would, they, but I would always want to hear their opinion. I think that has worked well for us. Last six years, uh, Harshal, the Indian payments business has gone through, you know, a huge amount of expansion. But there have been many moments when uh, it may have looked fairly bleak, or what the hell is happening, uh, or fantastic. Uh, you know, what would be that one or two down moments in your six years of building it out, where, uh, if at all there was, where you felt, hey, you know. Um, do have to go back and figure out why did we get into this in the first place? No, there are moments, of course, and uh, and the startup journey is full of ups and downs. I mean, if anyone says that it's just ups, they're lying to themselves. Yeah. Uh, so there are definitely moments where you think, and I think for us, uh, it started from day one. Like for example, like I said, like we decided to build something like this, and we started working with uh, banks and financial institutions in building that. And I think we were a year into the journey, as I said, like we started building it in 2014, but we went live in March 2015. But before we went live, I think in uh, around December, January timeframe, we started discussing within ourselves that, hey, it's taking too long because in a payment space, we had to go through a lot of compliances, certifications, approvals, yeah. bank agreement closures, uh, so many more things that I probably didn't know when we started, uh, quite honestly. And while we we're going through that, at a certain point of time, we, uh, me and Shishan got together and discussed that does this even make sense? Because if we were building like a consumer startup, like an e-commerce startup or something like that, at that point of time, we would have been able to launch it in two months. 
but this is taking way too long. Are we doing the right thing? And this is how the journey will be. How can we keep innovating? Because if everything takes one year or six months to launch, then how would we innovate and how would we stay ahead of the curve? Uh, I think at that point of time, we definitely did consider that maybe we should shut this down and do something uh, either less dependent on other players in the ecosystem or maybe go back to our jobs. Uh, I think the only thing that kept us going at that point of time is that, as I said earlier, we were conversing with the customers. And as we kept conversing with the customers, we realized that the that we have to solve this hurdle. We have to solve this. We have to solve this hurdle once. Once we are through this, then we already have customers waiting for us, and through that we could grow really fast. So we started using the time a lot more to talk to customers and ensuring the customers are ready for us. The day we went live. Sure. So I remember we went live in March 2015, and the day we went live, we had 300 to 400 paying customers on day one. Uh, this is the day of launch, and this is because we had primed those customers through the entire journey. That, hey, we are building something like this. Do you want it and stuff? And and they were waiting for us to go live. They actually done the testing integration on all those. So the day we went live, we are like 300 customers on day one. Uh, I think that worked well. Again, through that journey, at, at certain point of time, when like markets were going really weak in India, and this is around 2015, uh, sorry, 2016, when the markets had gone really weak in India. Again, at that point of time, we we did feel like okay, maybe uh, maybe our journey will not be as smooth as we thought though. Because uh, at that point of time, VC funding was drying up. Uh, this is not scaling up much. This is a time when a lot of, for example, a lot of e-commerce companies and food delivery companies were shutting down uh, businesses. Um, and at that point of time, the startup ecosystem looked really big. Uh, I think at that point of time, what helped us was our investors. Uh, well, actually, one of our investors went ahead and offered us a Series B term sheet and said, "Hey, while the markets are doing bad, uh, we firmly believe that I think your business will do really well as the market starts recovering." And we wanted to offer you a Series B term sheet. And that, uh, it was not about the money. I think we still had enough runway to last. But I think getting a Series B term sheet just showed to us that, okay, it's not just us alone that believe in this. There's somebody else outside us. There's an investor and a board member who believes in our journey as well. Yeah. And I think I think those things are really important in, in some of these times. Yeah. No, you've, you've hit one a very, very important point. I think often... It's the stamina of you and your team and your board members and your investors, frankly, because you know they are in it for the long haul, but they also have an investing cycle and exit and everything. I think, as I've seen, I mean, India is a very, a very uh, volatile market from a what you would say addressable market. I mean, and and the economics of your business actually. Another point I want to chat with you: forever change. Um, yep. And then you just wonder, you know, why are you doing this? And, and then suddenly one more regulation comes, one more regulation comes, and it feels like, you know, it's no longer that free. The stamina of trying to wait it out, and I think uh, sticking close to what you believe is your long-term thing, has actually helped many people. And, you know, yeah. you may do pivots, which is in, in your in, in your uh, thing may look very, very uh, you know, necessary, but... I think too many pivots uh, also cause issues down the road. And I think the yeah. fact that you were, I mean, we had we had demonetization, we had GST, and both these events uh, foretold that the market would expand dramatically. And it did perhaps for a short while. Uh, and then again, it went back. Uh, you know, so I, I remember those four or five years. Uh, point to point, things have gone higher, but I think there were many many lows as well as uh, the promise of the future. Now, as you see today, Harshil, uh, you know, you are a very relevant and scaled up and reliable more than anything. You know, I'm sure the elephants talk to you now and saying, you know, can we, can we use your payment services? Because you are one of the, yeah. one of the leaders in the, in the Indian payments market. What's the future looking like for you and payments in general? And how do you keep building scale, building more services? I know you launched RazorPay X. Uh, you are, you know, you've launched corporate commercial cards. Uh, you're looking at some lending, you know, all of these things. Uh, so is the future going to be adding more services to the same merchants uh, because they all need it? And banks like ours are, are, are staid, dodgy. <laughs> we are adapting to those times. Is that the opportunity you're seeing? Yeah, so I think the Indian 
business uh, finance ecosystem is still fairly nascent. Like online payments is a very small part of it. Uh, when we talk about digitization of businesses, I think the only thing that we have done so far is digitized payment acceptance. But when we talk about digitizing businesses, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Every other aspect of business uh, money management today happens through non-digital means. So whether it's paying out salaries, to paying out vendors, to paying taxes, to getting a loan, to deploying money into treasury, everything is still right now non-digital in, in the experience. And that's something that we really want to change. I think uh, our overall vision has been that we want to be in the business of moving money for businesses. And we want to build the entire financial ecosystem for disruptive businesses. I think we have only scratched the tip of the iceberg so far. Uh, and the reason I think we want to go deep into that, like payment acceptance is a big market and we'll continue to grow big there. But, uh, but unless we help a business digitize inside out, then they'll never understand the true value of digitization. Right? Like today, a small merchant doesn't want to accept digital payments and wants to accept cash. The reason for that is that everything else that he does happens on cash. So just accepting money digitally and putting it into his bank account doesn't solve anything because he should take their money out in cash again to pay to his vendors, to pay his employees, to pay everyone else. Right? So, so it's in, in very important that a business goes through the entire digitization journey. And it's then when they will truly realize the value of that. And that's what we want to build. So, so we've got into RazorPayX. The goal of that is to digitize the banking experiences in a big way for businesses. And what we are doing is that we are partnered with, uh, fortunately, we are partnered with RBL Bank on that. And we work uh, on top of the banking rails to build a lot of software solutions on top of the basic banking rails. Right. So if you, so tomorrow, if you want to come in and say that, hey, I want to do payroll, uh, we just don't show, show you an, a box to do NFT transfer. We show you everything, the 10 things that you'll need to do if you do payroll. So you'll have to enter the CTC, you'll have to pay professional tax on it, you have to pay PDS on it, you have to pay PF on it. Uh, you press one single click and we can do all those filing five payments for you and get you the compliance done. Right? And that's actually the value of digitization. Right? It's not just about doing an NFT transfer. And I think that's the journey that we are trying to build. Uh, similar thing on the lending side, we have not just saying, hey, approach pay and we'll give you a loan. We will not, nobody can approach Razorpay for our own. We don't have that model. So we are not like a bank or an NBFC in that model. Uh, what we do is that we look at the businesses that are already with us and they're using us for payments, they're using us through RazorPayX. We look at their data and, and use that to compute that, okay, how much loan could this uh, person get? And using that, we reach out to them that, hey, a loan is available to you. Uh, just do a KYC and get a loan out. I think that is a very interesting one because a business doesn't have to give me 20 documents or 30 documents just to prove that hey i can i am credit worthy for this loan we already know whether you're credit worthy or not and then we reach out to you so so i think the way i look at it is that in us all of those things have happened right so if you talk about payroll if you talk about vendor payments if you talk about b2b payments all of those things there's a there's a multi-billion dollar in company in each of these sure. segments because us as a market has matured like Parallelly, like all of these segments have grown parallelly. Somebody built payroll, somebody built external management, and each of these companies have gone ahead and become multi-billionaire companies. I think the opportunity that we believe that exists in India is that none of this exists. Most of these things are done manually. Most of these things are done on Excel files or outsourced consulting companies. And I think if you are able to build this vertically and horizontally integrated platform uh, that solves for all these fundamental business needs, that I think that is an that is an opportunity that that probably an, an entrepreneur like me would not have in any other market. I, I think you're absolutely right, and and you know, I I don't have any hesitation saying, as RBL Bank, we've learned so much from the startup ecosystem, and especially from people like you, uh, you know, because there are too many things to do, and frankly, banks are hardwired in a certain way, very tough to change. Uh, it is happening, but very tough to change to address a fast-moving environment. Now, talking about fast-moving environment, COVID, okay, and we've talked about this earlier. While it has a very important health aspect to it, we've heard a lot about uh, customers, individuals, small businesses, necessarily now moving more and more to digital services yep. for, for consumption and therefore for payments, delivery, etc. How has uh, things changed for you as a business? And what do you think the next couple of years could be? Do we go back to where we were? Do you think some changes are hardwired now? 
uh, do you think the default option for many new businesses will be digital first? Yeah, COVID is definitely a very important uh, change in the uh, in the business uh, ecosystem of India uh, and not just India across the world. Um, I think keeping the health aspect aside, I think from a business perspective, I think the way businesses conduct themselves is drastically changing. And I don't. I think some of these things will stay even after things come back to normal, uh, because change has been for pretty long. And I, think, I don't think a lot of these changes are unnatural. I think the, a lot of these changes are not happening just because of COVID. These changes were happening, but COVID has accelerated that. For example, if you talk about digitization, about accepting digital payments, these are things that were happening. But in a lot of places, these changes would have happened in the next two to five years. Uh, but COVID accelerated that, and some of these changes have happened in six months. And and I think. Even if things come back to normal, those changes are not going back. Uh, I think from our perspective, first from a business impact perspective, what you have seen is, uh, okay, the first couple of months of lockdown, everything went down, but today we are significantly higher than our pre-COVID volumes. Our merchant sign-up numbers are through the roof right now. We have, we're doing like 200% higher number of merchant sign-ups compared to pre-COVID levels. Because every merchant right now starts wants to accept digital payments on day one. A lot of offline and traditional physical merchants are trying to accept online payments. People are selling things on Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, a lot more than they would sell uh, physically. And some of these changes are big. Another example of the B2B side I'll give is that, I mean, as a bank, you would probably understand this space very well. FMCG supply chains are a very deep uh, and very tightly running ecosystem in India, right? FMCG supply chains are some of the strongest networks in, in, in the Indian business ecosystem. And a lot of people have tried to digitize that ecosystem. I mean, banks have tried it, we have tried it. It's extremely hard to move anything there because the ecosystem is so deeply interlinked within distributors, retailers, uh, uh, the brand and everyone else. Uh, and it's hard to move all of these together. Right? okay, let's all get digitized. Somebody will always say that, hey, I want to work the way I used to work. And everybody would go back to the same way because nobody wants to disturb uh, business. What do you, and while this has never happened, but in last six months, we have worked with at least four or five FNGG supply chain companies. Uh, we, have, we have worked with them to distress entire supply chains. Uh, and this is because people right now have a fear of cash. So the shopkeepers don't want to pay in cash. The distributors don't want to deal in cash. And that's why all of these guys, uh, all of these folks are changing uh, their supply chains. And that's a big change because once these supply chains are distressed, it's not like once COVID goes away, they'll go back to cash. They always wanted to get distressed. But nobody was willing to make the first move because of COVID. Everyone has come together and made that move. Uh, so some of these changes will be everlasting. I'm not saying everything will stick. Right now, a lot of shopping that used to happen in malls also is happening online. And I believe some of that will go back to malls once things open up again. But, but some of these changes in the ecosystem where base infrastructure is changing, I think those changes will be, changing, changes will be everlasting. Uh, so from our Razorpay perspective, what we have done is that we have we are, we, spend, we are spending a lot of time in understanding some of these changes and recalibrating our strategy for the next five years. Because, because the COVID, post-COVID world is not the same as pre-COVID. And, and when you talk about distillation, it's not as simple as, okay, hey, we, were used to do, we used to do these meetings in person earlier, now we are doing on Zoom calls. That's not the only change. The way our sales runs, the way our operations run, the way our customer support runs, all of those things need to be reimagined. So, and we are, we are working very closely. COVID, while COVID is changing a lot of factors externally, it's also changing a lot of factors on how companies run internally. And the companies who learn this the fastest and are able to adopt to the new system will, will be the ones who win in this new world order. Great, excellent. Very good insight. Let me just turn to the last section, Harshal. Uh, it's about you as the co-founder, CEO. Um, you know, what keeps you driven? What keeps you motivated? And what have been the some ways you've grown? I mean, you mentioned to me that building a startup is also growing yourself. What are what what would be those two three things which you would reflect back and say these are the things which have helped me strong. These are the learnings I've had, and this is what keeps me going. Yeah, let me start with the second part first. I think personally, it has been a very exciting journey for me, uh, and it's I mean, it has been through its ups and downs. I think the, the most important thing I've learned is that business and building a startup is all about perseverance. Um, giving up, I mean, you'll always have 20 or 30 incidents that will come in the journey where you'll want to give up. I think just persevering through it and ensuring that you are able to 
change directions, move around, figure your way through, and and find a way to keep going is really important. Because if you want to give up, like on you would want to give up on day one, you would want to give up on day ten, you would want to give up on day thousand. Uh, there is always enough reasons uh, for you to figure out okay why it would not work. You have to find those five reasons why it can work and what if it works. And I think that's really important to focus on that. Uh, couple of things that have changed for me is that I think I've become very patient uh, compared to when I started. Uh, I think in early days, I would get really worried. Hey, this client is not going live. Let's take it live today. But this product didn't go live. Hey, this feature didn't work. And I would get really impatient about it. Um, I think over time, so I've, over time, I've learned that, okay, well, all these things are important. Uh, in long term, like not, no single incident, no single event is as important, right? What is important is that is to ensure that your focus is on the right track. So I become very patient compared to when I started with uh, Razorpay with, and I think Razorpay has taught me that <laughs> uh, their business is and building a startup is about patience. Like you have to, you have to spend your time. You have to go through the grit uh, to make the company out, come out of it successful. And there are no shortcuts to it. So for example, the elephant story just tells you that okay, there are no shortcuts to it. It's not like Get four guys and suddenly you are get get four customers and suddenly you are like a multi-billionaire company. It, maybe you will become, but it will not last. Uh, you have to be, go through the grid. You have to go through the journey, and only then you will come out of it. Not just as successful, but as a sustainable business. Yeah. Um, because it's not about getting that that high valuation on that particular day. It's about maintaining that and being able to constantly grow that and give value to your investors, give value to your employees, give value to your clients. Sure. Uh, and and it's a long journey. So it's important to ensure that you're building it to be sustainable. Uh, coming to uh, what motivates me now, I think in early days, that was not that big of a question because the motivation was just to establish a startup. But in the last five years, if I mean, somewhere uh, Razorpay has been able to establish itself I think what excites me right now is the kind of opportunity that we have in India. Um, I mean, my co-founder left a multi-crore job in US to come back to start Razor Bay, uh, where we had zero salary for at least one and a half years. Uh, and the reason for that is that India is in a very exciting place right now. Uh, we have the right focus from the government. We have the right focus from the policymakers. We have the right focus from the uh, from the regulators. Uh, that they all want to do the same thing that we are trying to do. They all want to digitize the country. They all want to ensure that the country moves towards the digital era. Uh, and we have a very large population base. We have a large economy. And hardly 2 to 3% of it has actually gone through digitizations today. So I think the kind of opportunity that we have, it's not just about the money. It's not about the, the kind of profits that you extract. But you literally have an opportunity to influence lives of about a billion people. And I think, and I think that is really exciting. Excellent. I mean, really, really uh, fantastic uh, learnings along the way. And let me, let me, couple of last questions. Uh, who is your inspiration? As uh, you know, we all have these role models, people we've read about, people we've met. Uh, who would be your inspiration, um, business or non-business? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no single person, but uh, if I were to club it together, I think uh, I think Paul Graham, the founder of Biocommentor, is definitely one of the role models. I've read his essays long since college days. I've been reading his essays, and the way his essays go deep into how things should be or how things are is really interesting. It just changes your perspective. Uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I think I'll say Elon Musk uh, because the kind of things that he he's doing. It's not just, uh, it's not just having a business impact, it's having an impact on humanity. Yeah. And I think if somebody is able to drive like three or four things together, which has an impact on humanity, like most people uh, are not able to do even one thing that yeah. impacts humanity at world scale. And the guy is single-handedly driving like three things that, or four things that have an impact on humanity at a world scale. I think I don't, I, I, I can't see anyone else who can do that. And finally, I think Bill Gates, uh, not because of Microsoft, but because of the things that he has done after Microsoft uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the kind of things that he has done in changing the world. I mean, I think it's really exciting to see uh, what you can do once you cross that journey that you don't need to worry about money, what kind of impact that you can have on humanity. Sure. 
And I might add, I actually, I actually will echo all the three names you mentioned. And I have one more, which I hope you guys will grow into is Patrick Collison and John Collison of Tribe. Uh, because I, I think you guys are doing a remarkable job and, and I hope that we talk about Razor Pay being the India tribe equivalent. Uh, any last words for budding entrepreneurs? You're still, an, you're still a young entrepreneur and I, I hope you maintain that, uh, that uh, hunger and edge. Uh, any, any last comments for people who are going to see this uh, view, you know, video on people looking to start businesses, people looking to join young companies? Yeah, um, I mean, entrepreneurship is all about taking a risk, and um, and every founder who's decided to build something of their own has taken that risk. Uh, and when you're taking a risk, it's a very high risk, so you always have thousand reasons to not uh, continue further. I think one thing that I've learned in our journey with YC and everything else, with all these distractions going around, is that growth trumps everything else. So as long as you're growing, as long as you're moving forward and growing in not just in terms of uh, metrics, but like growing in terms of the customers that you survey, the kind of things that you do with the customer, growing in terms of the satisfaction that your customers have. And as long as you keep growing uh, in the metrics that matter, everything else will take care of itself. So let's say you're not getting funding today. As long as you keep growing, the investor will come back. Uh, some employee doesn't want to join you. You grow, keep growing, the employee will come back. The customer who doesn't want to use you today, uh, we have thousand examples of such customers who have come back as you've grown up to uh, to demonstrate that hey, we we got this. And so everyone will come back as long as you keep growing in, in, in the metrics that matter. And I think that's 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 the most important aspect of entrepreneurship. Excellent, Harshal. As always, for me to talk to you has always been many learnings uh, every time. And clearly, you know, we drive a lot of energy from people like you your successes as well as from your uh, learnings and we all think that uh, it's companies like Razorpay which will continue uh, expanding the boundaries of financial services and helping people like us actually become more and more customer centric. So thank you once again Harshil for your time and for your amazing journey uh, you know along with us. Thanks once again. Thank you Rajiv and it was it was really interesting to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you.